Hello everyone, welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Radically Loved. I am joined by a very special guest today. Maho Malfino is a fellow podcaster and best-selling author. She has a new book that's called Break the Good Girl Myth. And she is here with us today. Thanks, Maho, for being here. Thanks, Rosie, for having me. There's so many questions that I have. And the first being, like, what inspired you to write this book? And I'm sure you get this a lot. Mm-hmm. But mostly I feel like as a fellow Latina, mm-hmm. I'm always really inspired by women's stories of how, like, where did that thing, that inspiration, that that surge of mm-hmm. muse come from? So I always love to hear those stories. So please go ahead and, and share as much or as little as you like. Sure. So I am from Argentina, Argentina, and I was born there. And when I was really young, we immigrated. So that's been a big part of my story, being an immigrant. It totally shaped my life because when I went to school, you know, I was trying to assimilate and fit in. And then at home, I was speaking Spanish and my parents were had accents. And of course, I was embarrassed and all the things, but I also didn't want to disappoint them. Like my fear was that they would feel like leaving their country was a waste or a wash. So it was like whatever I could do to make them feel proud and happy. So there, there started my journey from a very young age to wanting to be the best daughter and be perfect and get straight A's and be a high achiever and all the things. And I just won the spelling bee. I did jazz ballet. I, you know, I was top of class, all the things that really made me successful in school. But then what happened when I graduated, I was lost and confused and having an existential kind of spiritual crisis at age 21, being like, what is my purpose on the planet? Why am I here? Like when there are no rules, then what do you do? do? What do you do when you're, especially if you've been following the rules basically your entire life when you get faced with this this situation of becoming autonomous right because Mm -hmm. so much i've had this experience with a lot of my friends who have grown up in other countries or they immigrated here you know both my parents immigrated here so i'm like first gen Mm -hmm. but there's still that sort of aim to please right it's like Mm -hmm. you made this huge sacrifice so the least i could do is succeed and follow the rules and that was part of you know our ingrainment was to follow the rules keep your nose you know keep Mm -hmm. your nose to the grindstone like just don't ask questions just do what you need to do and so for you you know growing up in in the same environment where you're following these these rules, these guidelines to get to a place where you're having to ask those questions. Like, 
what happened? What was you, what was the big catalyst moment for you? I remember being at this perfect job in Washington, DC. It was like a research job that my dad was really happy that I got. And it was a cubicle nine to five, terribly boring job. <laughs> and like, I really wanted to kill myself. And, and I remember looking in the elevator doors and I was in this, wearing this black blazer and these itchy pants. And it was like 8 PM at night. And I threw my styrofoam coffee in the garbage and I looked at myself in the mirror and I just remember thinking I was wearing a costume. It was like, I, I felt this moment of disidentification that sometimes you get in meditation or mindfulness where you're not, you're seeing yourself in a different light. And I was like, I am wearing a costume. And that was a big aha for me because I, at that point in my life, I was quite depressed and I hadn't really had such an onset of depression. I'd gotten out of a very toxic relationship in my college years and I was recovering from that. I was living at home with my parents. I was at the stifling job. And I was just like, you know what? I can take this costume off. It was like the first aha of like, I'm pre playing pretend. This is a big performance. This is a role that I'm playing. And so that was when the consciousness started to shift. It was a first moment. But there have been, I like to say, many epiphanies that happened that stacked up in my 20s that allowed me to sort of find my own path. It wasn't just one huge moment. I would say it was many shifts of awareness. Definitely finding yoga and meditation was up there in terms of, because right around that time I, I discovered breath work and it totally changed my life. Yeah. I mean, that's always such a huge question for people like me or people that listen to this podcast. It's to be able to recognize those little moments that are acting as signposts to change or to alert you that what you're doing is not that it's not right or wrong, you know, it's not about right or wrong, but that what you're doing is not really serving your highest purpose. It's not really serving your highest good. And, and I know that the subtitle of your book is how to dismantle outdated rules, unleash your power and design a more purposeful life. And I always love to hear people's stories, especially hearing how long it takes, because mm -hmm. a lot of the times people think that, oh, you have the realization and then there's this big event and then you just change. But I love that you're saying that it took a long time because mm -hmm. I feel that any good sustainable change has to happen over the course of time. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I like to say I built up my good girl archetype ages one to 20. And then I spent a decade pretty much like starting the deprogramming process. <laughs> and I'm still on it. I'm still on that program, but I made pretty big advances, I would say in that decade. And there were various things that helped me. So one big tool was breath work of meditation and mindfulness, huge tool. I would say another was psychedelics. So I'm, I'm starting to come out about that. I talk about it in my book under the myth of logic, but also speaking a little bit more about it on podcasts, because I think people are ready to hear about it. It's coming into mainstream consciousness. There's less stigma around it. I Psychedelics helped me enormously to see the cage that I was in and the ways that I had suppressed my creativity, my creative expression, my feminine power in favor of some other achievement, hyper-masculine, capitalistic orientation. And so that was big. And then the final piece was design thinking, which I spent a good part of the book talking about. 
I ended up going back to school, getting my master's in learning design and technology from Stanford University. And one of the things that I learned that blew my head off was the process of tinkering and prototyping. And that really helped me build a lot of creative confidence and helped me undo a lot of perfectionism that I had somehow picked up. It just coming out of that really amazing educational experience, I was just ready to create and create with a lot of confidence. And that really shifted me. So the work that I do with now with women is taking all these tools and basically bringing it together in my own unique method and offering it through my coaching and programs, et cetera. Yeah. And, and that's the basis of your book. And that's mm-hmm. why that's what you talk about. I'm curious to hear more about the psychedelics. I know that's going to be a thing people are going to want to hear more about. So can you tell us, like so many people talk about how it opens a different part of your your mind. And personally, I've never tried them before. And I, I definitely, it's not something I'm compelled to. I know that it's really worked wonders for certain people. And for me personally, it's just not ever been something that I'm, drawn to because I know a lot of people are I'm just always curious about like what the process was what did you see what was Mm -hmm. your experience like sure I also had a huge I had a thing around it being a good as a good girl right my thing around it was like this is these are drugs like this is not good this is you know this is bad stuff so I had this whole thing built up, like, cause I had, you know, it had been ingrained to me, like, don't ever do drugs. Right. So don't ever do drugs. So I was like, right. okay, I'm never going to like touch that stuff. But I had confronted. So to give the context, it was, I had quit my job, a second job that I had taken on another light, like sort of soul sucking job I had taken on in my mid twenties. And I decided to go to Burning Man. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, Burning Man is a social experiment. It's out in the desert. It has now it has a, a reputation that, you know, it has a maybe controversial reputation. Some people love it, some people hate it. So there's a lot of judgment about it. What it did for me and how why it helped me specifically was because I was always in a system of like school, family, religion, to go into like a completely counterculture environment where the principles had more to do with radical self-expression and gift economy and spirituality. It was just, and also a lot of people who go there are flipping gender scripts. They're flipping different scripts about how to behave and shedding a lot of societal expectations. It was really, really healthy for me at that point in my life to go. And I met a gentleman there. He was an older man. He was in his fifties and he was a totally quirky bird. And what was weird was if I had met this guy out on the street, I would have been like, this guy's crazy. He's like, he looks homeless. Like, who is this? Like, let me just, you know, pass him on in the street. But because I was in this social experiment, there was something. It felt yeah. natural. Like it was, it would seem normal in, it the, would context. Seem, in the context. It was yeah. like, he was playing an archetype. Right. And I was on a journey and the invitation that this archetype gentleman was offering me was medicine, what he called medicine and sacrament. So it was interesting for me to hear about a drug talked about in that way as well, because at that point I hadn't had any experience with psychedelics or I hadn't even gone and taken ayahuasca yet or anything like that. So I was just very new to it. And he said, Hey, I want to show you something I think is really going to help you. And I had a moment 
where good girl on my shoulder was like, no way. <laughs> right. And good girl on my shoulder was like mom and dad and all of society saying like, don't take a drug from the older man. And my intuition and soul and spirit was like, fuck yes. Like, this is it, you know, like this is for whatever reason set to you on your path and trust it and go with it. And I was in a completely safe and sacred context. And I had an incredibly powerful, spiritually uplifting experience. And it kind of, it was one of the other big epiphany punctuations, I would say in my consciousness that led me to realize how much of my creativity I'd been suppressing up to that point, because I was being such a good girl and because I'd been so eager to align with my father, actually, who was a scientist and reject my mother, who was an artist. Mm. So you did grow up having the two different archetypes, so to speak. You had the artist energy of your mother, and then you had the sort of like rigid scientific archetype as your father. So that's really interesting that you, mm-hmm. you went through this journey to sort of find your own mm-hmm. way to find your own path. Ho, 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 ladies, the holidays came early and not only for you, but also for your man here at Manscaped. The leading men's hygiene brand Manscaped just launched new products that your man will actually use, including their all new ultra premium body wash and two in one shampoo and conditioner. It's time to give the man in your life the gift of beautiful skin, hair, and balls this holiday season. So go to manscaped.com forward slash radically loved, and you'll get 20% off plus free shipping. Ever since last Christmas, when I got Tori the full Manscaped package, he's been talking to all of his friends about it. And it's actually really sweet to see a bunch of guys gathered together talking about skincare and grooming. Manscaped is going beyond the groin with their new ultra premium body wash. It's infused with aloe vera and sea salt to keep his skin feeling clean, nice, and moisturized. It smells so good. I guarantee you're going to want to use it too. Remember, it is the season, so you can load up on Manscaped products. Get it for your man, for your dad, your brother, your friends. It is a great gift for the holidays. Check out the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. You'll get 20% off plus free shipping if you use my code code www.manscaped.com forward slash radically loved. Your discount and shipping will be automatically added at checkout. That's www.manscaped.com forward slash radically loved. You can also click the link directly on this episode. Get your man the gift that you'll both enjoy, the gift of Manscaped. I know, I know. It feels like the year just started, but can you believe the holidays are literally right around the corner? When's the last time you got a gift that you really wanted? I know it's not popular for me to say this, but I always end up getting what I really want for myself. So make this holiday season the holiday that you can give yourself the gift that you've always wanted, a better smile. And my friends at Candid can help. While poorly reviewed or insanely priced, clear aligner companies use general dentists. Candid only works with orthodontists who are experts in tooth movement. With Candid, the same orthodontist who created your plan can track your progress so you never have to wonder how you're doing. You can book an appointment at a Candid studio near you or do everything from the comfort and convenience of your own home. 
The average candid treatment is just six months and you'll start seeing results way before then and it costs thousands less than traditional braces. And with your aligner treatment, you'll get Candid's teeth whitening for free. So you can treat yourself to the gift you've always wanted, a straighter and brighter smile. Right now, you can get started from home for just $15 with a Candid starter kit. Or you can book an appointment at a Candid studio near you today. Go to candidco.com forward slash loved and use the code loved. That's candidco.com forward slash loved. And use the promo code LOVED to take advantage of this limited time offer for a $15 starter kit. Candidco.com forward slash LOVED. And use the code LOVED. With so much in life trying to divide us, finding common ground can too often feel like a revolutionary act. Enter Van Jones. As a news commentator, Van hears opinions from across the political spectrum. But as a change maker, he's dedicated his life to cutting through the political noise. He's been building uncommon coalitions in pursuit of the common good. In the new Amazon original podcast, Uncommon Ground with Van Jones explores topics that affect us all, from climate change to racial inequality, the state of our democracy to quality education access for all. He's talking to thought leaders and getting real with the people about how to join hands in pursuit of the common good. At a time when things feel divided, Van and his guests are searching for unity and building bridges to bring people together. So if you're looking for hope, for a place where people are uniting to find real solutions, join Van on the journey to find uncommon ground. This podcast was so powerful. It was so beautiful to be able to see how everybody from the different perspectives, from the different belief systems to be respected and to actually be heard. And that's something that unfortunately, isn't publicized much these days on regular media. So I really loved that this podcast does the work of bringing people together. Uncommon Ground premieres on October 27th on Amazon Music or wherever you're listening to this podcast now. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating, you know, the conversations that I've had with people who have used psychedelics before how and it's interesting because not all of them have had great experiences i mean i would say that for me the people in my life it's been half and half like half Mm -hmm. have had these really great beautiful awakenings where i mean truly it saved their lives because they Mm -hmm. had been struggling for so long some of them had been struggling with some pretty severe trauma and things like this. And I know that there's so much research that's going on right now with using psilocybin to treat depression and PTSD. And people listening to this podcast, you'll have to go listen to somebody who's way more qualified than I am to learn more about it because I have no idea. I also know the other half that have had these not great experiences. And I really just do believe that with everything, it's important for people to be fully grounded with where they are and to be fully grounded in in their life and to be in a place of not being desperate Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I feel like in that desperation, sometimes we make decisions that aren't going to serve our highest good. And so, for example, like what you were saying, you said, I was in this place and my intuition was saying, yes, like, I feel like the only time we can actually tune into that intuition is when we are in that grounded, open space where you're just like, okay, this paradigm is no longer working for me. Mm 
mm-hmm. I am now wanting to be open to what is there. And for some people, yeah, it may be trying different mm-hmm. types of things. And for some, it, it just is having the awareness. So I think it's really, I love that you were able to, to see that. You know, that there's another thing that I really liked from what you said, and maybe you can elaborate more, the dismantling of this, I'm doing air quotes, like of the good girl, right? So mm-hmm. the sort of dismantling that happens in this process of self-discovery, and as you mm-hmm. dove deeper into the core of who you are and what you wanted to do, like, can you walk us through that process and what that looked like for you? Yeah. So the dismantling of the good girl really happened, like I mentioned, in that first moment in looking in the mirror. It happened in that medicine journey that I took. It also happened in the training and learning of design thinking at Stanford. I think that really broke some structures down. I went on to have other moments. But for me, it's really about understanding the five good girl myths and really looking at each one of these subconscious tendencies, bringing a light to them because they're what I call in the book, they're blind spots. They're sneaky programs (laughs) that, that are put into us. They're downloaded into us as little girls. And then we're still running the program as adults and we have to erase it or get rid of it. And so so the learning the five good girl myths and, and seeing them in my, you know, going back to your first question, what inspired me to write the book, seeing them in myself, seeing them in clients, hearing them in podcast listeners, seeing them in friends and family, whether they were from Japan, Brazil, Canada, didn't matter, Australia, like global phenomenon, noticing, wow, there's some persistent patterns here around how we behave and the tendencies we have picked up from patriarchy, basically, which is what I argue in the book is that we're born into a patriarchal society that has a very defined idea of how a girl and a woman should be. And we have swallowed that idea and we're going along with the program, but it's up to us to choose if that actually feels integrated or actually feels right for us. And so that's been a big big thing is uh, understanding the five good girl myths and then working with each one. Which one is the biggest one? From all five? Yes. So I like to say that we each have our own dominant good girl myth. So it will depend. So for you, it might be different for me. I have met women who their biggest good girl myth is the myth of harmony. It's really hard for them to use their voices and exert their boundaries and will and share how they're really feeling about something and give people feedback. It's very difficult. Having difficult conversations is like death. They do not want to do it. (laughs) That is the myth of harmony. Uh, That is not my dominant good girl myth. My dominant good girl myth is the myth of perfection. So for me, it's having impossibly high standards for myself and other people and not being able to sort of accept the messiness of life and the way things are. That's my dominant. I have met women who have also the myth of sacrifice as their number one. They are such givers. They're such helpers. There's so much about the other that they are the bottom. They're at the bottom of the list. <laughs> they're bo- at the bottom of their own list. <laughs> yeah. They get to it after they've gotten to everybody else. And that's not sustainable over time. So it's hard to say which is the biggest. 
It will depend. I have seen also, I think a lot of us grapple with the myth of rules, which is the first one. Yeah. But I also like to say it's, it's the most foundational, but it's also the sneakiest, the hardest one to detect. I love that you said it's the sneakiest because that means that this entire process is going to require us to inquire within, and it's going to require us to do that self-inquiry. What does that self-inquiry look like for you now? Now? Yeah. What a good question. I do a lot of journaling and that has helped me a lot. And I particularly like to journal around specific times of my menstrual cycle because it helps me see patterns. And I track my menstrual cycle pretty well. So I'm like, okay, no, I am seeing that this hormones are definitely changing mood and definitely changing how I feel about myself and my inner critic. So that's been a real big one. I am a huge, huge proponent of also taking action because as much as we can journal, meditate and do internal work, I really do feel like action has been a really beneficial way for me to see where I still have blind spots and where I can continue to be brave and continue to lean into my edges. So like even doing video or being on social media, it's like all the perfectionism comes up of like, Oh, my hair doesn't look wrong. You know, and it's like, Oh, myth of perfection coming up. Okay. Let's just put the reel up and like forget about it and let go of the comparison and judgment and you know, I'm laughing because I'm like, Oh, I could totally so relate to that so much. Yeah, I think everything that you're saying definitely resonates because all of those things that come up in our psyche, the the things that stop us from taking action, I love that you're saying how important it is to actually do the thing that we need to do in order to bring our our dreams into fruition. I have a question about your writing process. What was sure. that like for you? Like how, when you wrote the book. Because you're writing a book, right? I am. Oh yeah, my God, so, how exciting. I know. So I always like to ask authors, I'm like, what was your writing process like? Mm-hmm. What were the biggest snags? And what was the most exciting? What was the peak, the pinnacle of the experience? Sure. Okay. So what's your book about, by the way? I'm so excited. It's a, it's a book about spiritual empowerment. So beautiful. Yeah. It weaves in my journey of self-discovery and it definitely weaves in a lot of uh, meditative and mindfulness practices throughout the book. I love it. I love it. Okay. So, and you got a book deal already, right? With Penguin? Yes. Okay. Congrats. So the hard part is already over. You got an agent, you got a book deal. You wrote a proposal, I imagine. <laughs> you already went through that painful ring of fire. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I still am caught a little bit on fire from it. <laughs> You're still like, <laughs> yeah, like putting some, uh, some lotion on, yeah, yeah, like helping you. Yeah. So that was the hardest part for me, honestly, was the proposal. I spent a great deal of time on it. Depending on how much time you spend on the proposal, it will kind of, I have a theory, it, will, it may change how things go with the manuscript. If you really thought through the proposal and the structure, I think that the manuscripts will flow if you keep on with that structure. Because I had spent a year and four months kind of pinning down the structure of the book. When it came to writing the manuscript, I was like, okay, I was sort of like, I'm not changing the structure. Like, I'm just going to fill in. But I've had friends who maybe if they spent only like three or four months on the proposal, then when it came to running the manuscripts, like they wrote a whole different book than what they sold. And so that, you know, that's a different path and that can take longer. It's just time here or there (laughs) in the front or in the back. But basically, I think the hardest thing was sort of 
really getting my core argument down, which was, hey, we live in the patriarchy. Guess what? Patriarchy lives inside of us and it manifests as the good girl archetype. And here are the five good girl myths that you need to overcome. And by the way, you can use design thinking, mindfulness, that to overcome these five myths. So like coming up with that through line took a while. That like level of clarity, of conceptual clarity, once that was the hardest part. Um, writing the book itself was actually fun. Like my highlight was research. I love research and like just getting lost in papers and hours of like following my curiosity and be like, Oh, I wonder if they research this, if they found this, you know, and like kind of going down another rabbit hole. I like that. So that, that really, um, kind of gets me excited. Did you have a schedule? Like, were you able to just create a sketch? Did you write this during the pandemic? No. I wrote, it came out during the pandemic. Okay, I did yeah. not write it during the pandemic. How long did it take? Oh, well, I already asked you that. But I'm like, the process of uh, actually writing, like, did you have a schedule? Were you, did you wake up in the morning? Or are you, are you the type of person that just works through the day and night and you just get it done? No, I, I would max out at three or four hours a day. Yeah, because just the level of attentional focus that you need after the three hour mark, you notice your writing starts to decline, <laughs> at least for me. I was like, oh, my writing is like starting to decline. Like quality's not there. Like tomorrow's a new day. So let me just put this to rest. I was really big with writing in the morning because my mind is so fresh in the morning. So I'm a huge fan. I actually think waking up, what I would do is I would have a, I would wake up at like 6 or 7 a.m., have a very light breakfast. Like I would have an apple and almond butter. So something I could eat while I was writing. So I didn't have to like make a big elaborate breakfast because I'm a big breakfast person. So I would just keep it light and even like making a smoothie, like then you're like making all these decisions, like, oh, what do I put in here? <laughs> what do like, I put in what? here? And you're yeah. losing precious I'm, mental cognition. Yes. And it's, you're getting more and more decision fatigue. So <laughs> simple breakfast, like toast with butter, like whatever, like super simple, like two ingredients, simple. And then just like go at it for like two hours and then stop, have a proper breakfast and then come back and then go at it for another two hours and then call it a day. And afternoons would be calls and client work. I wrote while I continued to see clients. I didn't have as full of a practice, but I still had one. Wow. That's a lot. So you were, you were doing all of it. That's Wow. That's great. I love that's that. the that's myth cool. of perfection for you. Right? I'm like, wow. You know, I say that while I'm in the middle of writing, doing four po- podcasts in a day mm-hmm. and, you know, still trying to do everything. So I'm, I'm always trying to draw inspiration from other authors to hear what their process is. But I love what you said about the breakfast, because even that little thing, that decision fatigue that can happen. And I feel like we go through that decision fatigue all day long. You know, mm-hmm. for me, I'm the cook of the family. So I mm-hmm. have to stop and make lunch. I have to typically breakfast. We, we kind of just do our own thing, Tori and I. And for lunch, I make lunch and then I have to make dinner and then I have to like plan and then I have to go to the grocery store. It's just like a whole mm-hmm. time consuming experience that I feel can exhaust that part of your creative mind. And so mm-hmm. I feel like having a designated time to be able to do that, especially for the people listening who are aspiring writers or who want to be a blogger, they want Mm -hmm. to post content. I think it's important to do exactly what Maha is saying that Mm -hmm. 
finding that time that is going to be the most pure Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And eliminating as many other decisions as possible. So I heard that Obama, when he was president, had like, he just wake up and he only had like a gray suit and a black suit. And, And he woke up and he knew what he was wearing every day because he had to make so many decisions as president that making a decision about what he was going to wear, he just couldn't. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Like if you study the rituals of creatives, you know, there are people who've written books on this. They are the most boring, routinized people. Like they wake up, like they eat like the same croissant and then they like go at it for like, they paint for like an hour and then they go for a walk for exactly 15 minutes. And you're like, they do the exact same thing every day. Why? Because they don't want to spend time being creative about their routine. They want to be doing deep creative work and they want to stabilize their routine. So you want less variety actually in your habits, if you can pull that off in order so that you can really sink into the creative work. And I'm a big believer in that, especially with deep creative work where you have to sustain yourself for multiple hours. You really want to minimize decision-making with food and also dress what you're going to wear. And you want to be routinized, wake up, brush your teeth the same way, wash your face the same way. I know it sounds like extreme, but it really helps. Yeah, I love that. Oh man. So there's so many more insights that I want to know about, but I'm also glad that there's an entire book that I can read on the subject. So the book is called Break the Good Girl Myth, How to Dismantle Outdated Rules, Unleash Your Power and Design a More Purposeful Life. So I want to thank you for being on the show. Is there any other thing that you'd like to share with the audience? No, just that if you are going through a hard time right now, if you feel like you know, you're at a low point or anything like that. I just want to let you know that it's good. It's a good thing to be there and that you are most likely undergoing a powerful transformation and there is light at the end of <laughs> end of this tunnel and you'll come out the other side, I think a lot stronger as well. Cause I know that a lot of people feel like they're on the cusp of change, but they can't put their finger on what's next. Just be patient with yourself, have a lot of self-compassion and, you know, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. I'm always, I like love to DM and I love meeting new people on there. I'm at Maho Molfino. That's M-A-J-O Molfino. So like, don't be shy. Feel free to say hi. Great. And we'll actually put those links as well as uh, a link to the book on the info button of this podcast. So you can just uh, go to the info button wherever you get your podcasts and get all of those links there. Before I let you go, Maho, I have one final question for you. And that is, how do you feel radically loved? Hmm. How do I feel radically loved? I feel radically loved when I snuggle up with my husband and I feel very safe and warm in his arms. I know it's kind of cheesy, but that's where I feel radically love loved. <laughs> no, I love that. We love, che- this is like the cheesy portion of the programming. We love that so much. Um, thank you so much again for being here and for just being part of our community and for all the work that you do. It's always great to hear women creating community and writing about being creating a new paradigm shift within themselves, writing about transformation. I'm always so inspired and I love hearing these stories. So thank you so much for being on here and for sharing all of your wisdom. We hope that everybody listening or watching this, that you enjoyed the show, please let us know. 
And we are, again, so grateful to have had you on. Thanks, Maho. Thanks, Rosie. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so excited to continue to do this. Please share this with your friends. Email us. Message us on Instagram at Rosie Acosta or on Twitter at Rosie Acosta. Subscribe on iTunes. Write a review. We love doing this. So please help us continue to keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening.